Click on Romans, left click. There you go. And then you'll see, there you go. There's, that's how to access the recordings of Sunday school lessons. And hopefully we'll get mine recorded today because it's going to be so good. Uh, no, right, right. I, I might even want to take notes on myself. Never mind. Okay, so, all right, let me get oriented here. You should have a handout, and on that handout, oh, great. We'll keep this handy, though, for the, uh, when we have the interactive part of the presentation. Thank you, Angela. All right, let's get this, this show on the road. Oh, okay. Uh, click out of that. Left-click at the top and get out of it and go to my uh, PowerPoint presentation. You'll need to left-click on it. You should have, if you don't have, a handout. Uh, Mr. Bryant, my assistant, able-bodied assistant, can bring you one if you want to raise your hand. And on here, you have room on the third page to take notes. Now, what you want to do is do the presentation mode. I'll show you that. I'll, I'll click on that, and then you're good to go. I'm going to do that. All right. Yeah, Dorothy's reminded me, do you want to pray first? You know, the last time I was with you, you know, somehow I've been dubbed the prayer guy at church because I lead the 430 prayer service, and the prayer guy forgot to pray at the end of last lesson I, I did this. So, pardon me? Oh, I'm caught. We don't want to make a scene here. Very good. Let me get this in here. Okay. Um, and so don't let me forget to pray, particularly at the close. Okay, so we have been studying in our Sunday school Romans, the power of God as the theme, and um, first a little follow-up, when I was with you several uh, weeks ago, I think it was four weeks ago, I challenged y'all to do something. Does anybody remember what I challenged you to do, and did you do it? Anybody do it? I don't see Mr. Holly and Jeannie in here, but I challenged everyone to read the book of Romans as though it was a letter to yourself or a letter to Christ's covenant all in one shot, because that's the way the Romans would have read it. So I the next, actually, the, that Tuesday, David told me that he and Jenny did it Sunday night after worship, and they did it on audio, and he said it took them an hour and 15 minutes, just an hour and 15 minutes to listen to the whole book of Romans. So I reiterate that challenge to you, it's because that's the way the Romans would have heard it, and by reading it like that, you get a different flavor than dicing and slicing every verse, which is good to do too, which we're going to do this morning. But uh, people in Rome would have read it that way. The church would have read it probably out loud to them that way. Okay. Also, just a quick disclaimer. I want to challenge you all to be good Bereans. You know, when Paul wrote to, um, I think it was in Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica, he challenged them to be Bereans. And, and he said that in Berea, those folks would take out their Bibles and check everything he said against the Word of God, which in, for those folks, it was the Old Testament. So I, I want you to do the same for me. Some of the things we're talking about today are a little controversial, um, and, um, but you should do that for every teacher or preacher that you hear. Check them against the Word of God because we search the Scriptures because in them we think we have eternal life, as Jesus said. So be good Bereans. All right, today my assignment is this text, Romans 3, 21 through 31. And I feel like I have won the lottery. This is, this is what I was assigned to do, and this is the most glorious passage in Scripture in, in my view. Um, it's one of the most glorious passages in the entire Bible. It's the hinge verse. We've been talking about the depravity of God, of, of man. This is the hinge where we got, he set us up for the good news. And this morning we're going to get into it. <clears throat> we're going to address what was at the heart of the Reformation, and that is the doctrine of the justification 
by faith. It was controversial in the 16th century, and it still is, but it addresses head-on a fundamental question, the most important and simple question, and that is how can an unjust person ever hope to stand before the judgment, just judgment of a holy God? That's the question, really, that the whole book answers that question, but that's the heart of biblical justification. And understanding justification is critical, critically important and has eternal consequences. Heaven and hell are on the line. Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. The entire church either stands or falls based on this. And yet the average Christian, if you accost them on the street, oh, I'm a Christian, and ask them what justification is, they're going to struggle. This is so important, and yet most people struggle to tell you what it means. So first, a quick review of where where we've come from. Paul, in his letters to the Romans, is making an argument. Not every book of the Bible is an argument. It's it's actually a series of arguments in Romans, but this this book is. And so he's continuing his argument this morning in this chapter. And he has, in the last... Two and a half chapters, he has cited texts from the Old Testament that indict the entire human race. The Jews who have the Torah and the Gentiles who don't have the Torah, but they've got the law written on their hearts, um, where the Jews have it on stones, everybody has it because in nature. And then he kind of concludes last week, uh, well, in chapter three, yes, last week, no one does good. No, not even one do good. If, you know, I know people that are good. No, Paul says none of us, not where it counts, are we good when it comes to being in front of a holy God. All stand condemned before God, guilty and deserving of all the covenant curses. And Paul is saying, don't trust in your righteousness because nobody has it. Not the righteousness that will justify you before God. Not even your so-called good works are filthy rags. Um, and whether we know it or not, our condition is very desperate. <clears throat> so I'm going to pick up uh, just a few verses from last week to give it a little context. You know what the uh, three most important things are in real estate? Location, location, location. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, the three most important things are context, context, context. That's also true of vasectomies as well, location. Well, never mind. Never mind. Uh, sorry. The, well, never mind. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Dorothy's here to check me. All right. So the last, last week in verse, I am, I am. Last week in verse 19, just to give context, we know that whatever this Paul is saying we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouse may be stopped. He, we should shut our mouth. We've got nothing before God. And the whole world may be accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's a very important principle. The law is like a mirror. If I have a dirty face, if I try to scrub it with a mirror, it's not going to get me clean. It, it that's not the function of the law. A mirror, though, will tell, you, tell me that my face is dirty. The law is the same way. It will tell us that we're sinful and we need a Savior. <clears throat> in essence, Paul has laid out in the previous chapters, it's like he's put a black cloth on the table and he's put uh, a diamond on top of it. That background, he's now ready to present the most magnificent um, just most glorious thing in, in the backdrop of that sinfulness. He's going to turn the lights on, and we're going to see that this morning. And to mix my metaphors a bit, he's moving from a very bleak diagnosis to the cure in this passage today. So with that, let us pray before we read our, our text. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity we have this day to look at this glorious passage and see what you have done for sinners through Christ and how we can be right in your sight. 
Lord, um, give us the understanding and help us interpret it rightly. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So many have said that this is the most important paragraph of all of Scripture. In fact, Luther wrote in his famous German translation, this is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. You'll hear a lot of Luther quotes today. In fact, for this occasion, I wore my here-I-stand Luther socks <laughs> that Steve Bryant gave me last year, I think. <clears throat> I do. I do. Yes, that's right. When you were over there, you got them for me. That's right. I forgot that part. All right. Here, this is uh, the Word of God, so let's pay close attention. Picking up with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is the God of Jews the is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is, the one, is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, next slide. There we go. Nope. Back up to the second slide, I think. Boom. There's a little arrow. There you go. That one. Yep. Okay, so we're going to break down first this, this passage um, bit by bit. This is one, the first word, but. It, you know, the Bible has a lot of glorious buts. This is probably one of the, the most glorious. Um, but. Now, in the present time, current like never before, things are changed. Things are different now. A new and living way, a new epoch. Before, it's like you had to present your resume before God. And it, it better be good enough. But now, this is a completely different. It's not from our own personal obedience and striving it's different. So the righteousness of God, this is such a key phrase. Now that can be interpreted, the, the, the um, preposition there, of or from. And we're going to talk about both how there are two aspects to the righteousness of God. And one of them is his attribute. It basically, God is, what God is, is the righteousness of God. That is one of his attributes. God is holy, holy, holy. He's a consuming fire. The other is from God, the righteousness from God that he gives us. It is a gift, like a royal grant. I, I learned what a grant was when my kids were going to college many, many decades now ago, or a couple of decades, almost two decades and on the FAFSA thing we filled out, I saw a line that said Grant. It didn't say Royal Grant. It said Grant, and it's like $1,500. And I, somebody was, we were looking at it and said, oh, you don't have to pay that back. It's a, it's a gift. Cool. I like that. I'll take that. So this righteousness from God is 
freely given. At, at, there's no cost. Well, the cost was paid by Christ. It has been manifested. It has been made known apart from the law. Now, that phrase, apart from the law, means that apart from your efforts, my efforts, your law-keeping, it has nothing, your law-keeping has nothing to do with your salvation. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's, not, it's important we obey the law, but when it comes to being justified before God, your, your law-given isn't squat. It's like, and Paul is very, you know, I was a little earthy earlier about the vasectomy thing. The Bible is, can be very earthy, and Paul was very earthy when he said, our works are like skabala, which is a very earthy term that means basically it's like, we, God, I want you to see all my works and, and judge me by them. It's like us holding up a platter of dog poop. Our works can do nothing to save us. So it's all apart from the law. This new way has nothing to do when it comes to your salvation. And he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is what Moses, the Psalms, and all the prophets have been pointing to all along. It, it's very much like if, um, if you walk into a room and it's dark. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was, things were dark, but in the New Testament, the lights are fully on. It's the same furniture. It's just now open, and it's, it's, but it's been there all along. Uh, that analogy is similar to what Paul is saying here. Now it's plain to see, and it makes so much more sense now after the cross. And, and Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This phrase right here is, um, very, was very important to Luther. When he transcribed this passage, he added the word alone to this phrase. Now, you're, you're, if you're in the um, ESV or any translation, you're not going to see the word alone. But when Luther transcribed it into German, he added the word sola or alone because uh, it was implied and nearly explicit in the context. As well as supported by many other scriptures, uh, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. There is no other name given under men to be saved, and so on. And Rome, of course, took great issue with his putting the word alone in there. Um, and yet, Rome's arguably the greatest theologian they ever had, Thomas Aquinas, who went by Thomas. You know, you know you're a good theologian when they just say, oh, Thomas said. Some 500 years earlier, he agreed with Luther, Luther, saying that the adverb alone was demanded by the context. This righteousness from God, the righteousness that comes from God, is for all who believe. Now, all means everybody. That includes rich, poor, black, white, Asian, Latino, good-looking, ugly, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, and and Paul, Jew, and even Gentiles. Now, that was a big deal back then because the Jewish mindset was those dogs, the fact that they now have access to salvation was a very novel thing in this day. But it, even for the Gentiles, it was radical. It would be like saying that Al-Qaeda or Hamasians can, if, if they have faith in Christ, um, they can be saved, assuming they believe in Christ. I think we're going to be very surprised when we get to heaven. Um, I always like to think of, you know, we're around a circle, kind of like when we, with our friends, and we're going to look over here and say, how did you get in here? <laughs> um, and then there may be people, you know, where's Jack? I thought he was going to be in here. We, I think there'll be a lot of surprises when we get to heaven. No one knows except the Lord who is and who is the sheep, whose sheep and whose goat. But there is no distinction, Paul says. God is no respecter of persons. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and Paul and all of Scripture emphasize that the standard is absolute perfection. We talked about that when I was here before. We were created in the image of God to reflect his glory, and we lost that glory. Our sin separated us from God. <clears throat> and we are justified. We come to where I want to talk about justification. Uh, and so turn to your handout where you have definitions and I want to go over this a little bit because justification is our subject this morning. I want to make sure we understand our terms. And so I, I help, hope this is helpful. Justification is defined as the declaration of a person to be just or righteous. A declaration. Being justified is a forensic event. The opposite of condemnation. This is all courtroom language. In contrast to sanctification, which is a process. It's not a one-time thing. It's a process. Justification is a one and done. It's a one-time event where God declares one to be righteous. In modern-day evangelicalism, those two things are very much confused. Justification, though, is a one-time event. Yes. Okay. Yes. The um, that's right, and, and it's a good point. Um, for those that listen to this on tape, it's very important to point out that it's permanent and unchanging. There's, uh, it, it's, as Hebrews said, it's once and for all. You are, if, you're, if you're justified, you're always going to be justified. And we won't get into the um, uh, P, how we're, the whole once saved, always saved, but that's exactly right. So, and we're made righteous by his grace. And I didn't put a definition of that, but the grace... That's one of the solas. It's the unmerited favor of God as a gift through the redemption, which I did put. This redemption is when something's been lost and been paid for by ransom and paid for by Christ and his very life that is in Christ Jesus. By the way, um, flip to the solas. In this verse, you've got all five of the so-called solas where it alones. We are, there we go. This is a, I didn't, for speed's sake, I just took a picture of a night shirt I have. Um, that's why it looks like it does. But you have in these verses all the solas of the Reformation. This is, um, and... That's another reason why I'm so excited about sharing this morning because we're just, what, 10 days out from Reformation Day? But here in this passage, you see just all five of them. I think all, except solo Deo Gloria, to, to God, for the glory of God alone. It may be hard to find that one. But all the other four are in this, this passage that we just read. So, picking up on verse 24, if you'll go back to that one, boo. Under... Um, so that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, that's another word that I thought would be helpful to have a definition. So you'll see on your handout, defin uh, propitiation is the providing of satisfaction or appeasement of anger. To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. It's a big word, but it's an important Bible word. And uh, a great example of that, um, if, if um, uh, well, I think what I was going to share is last winter when the grass, I, I love my grass, and I'm, I'm kind of anal about it. And so Amazon and UPS and my mail person 
had this thing about going into my grass this far, and it's, it's wet and dark those, these days, and they would make all these ruts. It drove me crazy. I was angry. <laughs> I complained to Amazon. I complained to Time Warner, who backed up in and got stuck, and, and they didn't even bother to tell, come to my door and say, we made a real big mess of yard. And so I, it just kind of ticked me off. I was, I had wrath. <laughs> so I call Time Warner, and I call... Amazon, and each of them sent me a $200 check. They said, would, would that make you happy? Yeah, $400. I was propitiated. <laughs> or they, that propitiated my wrath. And that's what's going on here in Scripture. Christ propitiated the wrath of God that we so deserve, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Um. Justification is a one time, and the propitiation is, well, it's ongoing because we keep sinning. Oh, yeah, I hope it's one time. <laughs> well, that jury's still out on that. This year, I put up these posts along the drive, so at least I'll know that, um, and hopefully they'll see them. I, I, I thought about that, but I'm not, not going to go there, even though there was a part of me that wanted to. So, it, this all reminds me of a very special thing that happened um, when my kids were growing up. It's one of my greatest memories, a precious moment when one of my daughters, we were in the car, and actually, Stephen, it was, I remember exactly when it was, we were delivering a milkshake to Joe for her, um, it was either her birthday or, or no, it was high school graduation. And I was outside your, your house getting ready to go in, and I asked my daughter, Jenna, my middle daughter, from what are we saved? And Jenna just was real pensive for a while, and she thought, and she said, the wrath of God. And I'm going, yes. <laughs> I knew that she understood the gospel. And I, I was just, I was just in ecstatic. So the word is actually helastrion. I don't know how to pronounce it, um, Bill. Is, it, is that right? <coughs> Good enough. Some translations in your Bible will, will translate that expiation and some propitiation. Scholars say that it includes, that Helestrian includes expiation, which ex means a wiping or means out of, but it's much more. It also connotes appeasing or quenching, quenching wrath. You know, the, we sing a song, Mount Sinai's, he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Both words are two of the most beautiful words in our faith. In fact, John, I love this John Murray quote. He said, God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. By the way, the Jews got this much better than the Gentiles. Um, the first letter, you know, Paul was a Jew, and um, the first epistle he wrote was Thessalonians, and it's just full of wrath and fury of the judgment to come. He, Jews got this. Now, Gentiles, on the other hand, their big issue was they thought that salvation came when I get out of this stinking body. Um, and so to them, salvation was death. I'll fly away, you know, the whole uh, Greek mindset. So, but wrath is uh, to both was, was um, what Paul was trying to get across here. That, God, that is what, exactly what God says. So let's go back to verse 25. If you go back to that slide, there you go, boo. Whom God put forth as propitiation by his blood, not because he was a great teacher, inspirational figure, but because of his sacrifice. We preach Christ and him crucified. And, it's, and Paul says it's to be received by faith, sola fide, faith is the instrument or means by which we are granted that righteousness of God. It's not, faith is not the cause of your salvation because even faith, we know from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it is a gift from God. Even our faith. We are not saved by our faith, but rather, of course, the object of our faith. 
We are saved by Christ, sola Christus, and his work. And this is crucial because if you think it has to do with your faith, the next time that you feel like your faith is weak, you're going to have doubts about your salvation. And uh, just remember that even a weak faith in a strong Christ is sufficient because of Christ. Your, your faith is the instrument or ticket or the means by which you access that righteousness that he gives it to you. But it's, it's not, you're not saved by your faith. But that um, weak faith is strong grounds for your full assurance. And this, back to the scripture, this was to show God's righteousness, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Everybody, including the patriarchs of the Old Testament, every Old Testament person, we today, during Christ's time, all are saved by the same way, through faith in Christ. Now, for them, it was looking forward. You might say that they were, uh, paying, were on credit for a price that would be paid. We look back um, to this payment. It, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier. Again, courtroom language. The verdict is in. The guilty has been acquitted. He can do that. How can he pull this off? Justifying the wicked while maintaining his justice. You would not have any respect for a judge who let wicked people go free. God can do that because of our debt was paid by a substitute, by another. This is, um, of course, this one who has, was our substitute is the one who has faith in Jesus. So he, he then, and, and by the way, it's, uh, that's why Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's, it's not ours. It's something he did for us. Uh, I like the um, analogy of, you know, when the war was over, I remember I was... Um, remember seeing, I wasn't alive in World War II, but uh, the newspapers had huge font, war over. It's something the boys over there did for us. We didn't do anything about it. Uh, the boys over there took care of it for us. It's, it wasn't us, but Christ did. And so the one who has faith in Jesus is justified. And now he kind of, now the next slide, boom. Um, then he takes kind of a different slant, and he he. He anticipates objection. So then what becomes of our boasting? Why does Paul bring up boasting? Because he knows the human heart is full of pride. If there's any way, man, I, I or you could take credit for it, we probably would. Um, but it is excluded, he says. Our boasting is shut down forever, once and for all time. We did all the sinning. He did all the saving and dying. By what kind of law? Now, Paul's, these are rhetorical questions he's asking, and he's answering it by a law of works, and that is to say by our own efforts. No, but by the law of faith. Again, a John Murray quote. Faith is self-renouncing, whereas works are self-congratulatory. You know, by nature, that is the fundamental Thing that if you ask, and you, if you'd ask me, and I still fight it, this, this, we are wired to think we have to have something to do with it, particularly as Americans. We are can do, get it done people. Uh, we, we have, you know, the, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we, we um, are just wired that But we were wired that way from the, the law we get. The gospel we're allergic to, we, it's hard. We have to be reminded. That's why we have to hear the gospel over and over and over. I do because I forget it over and over and over. Luther was once asked, why do you preach justification by faith? Or why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? And it says, well, my people forget it every Sunday. We've got to hear it over and over. So our boasting, we, we have nothing to boast about. <clears throat> so... He, he's coming to his conclusion for this mini-argument here. 
this important argument. We would hold, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is it, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Since we don't get right with God by obeying the law, does this mean the law of God counts for nothing? Basically, it's what he's saying. You know, some, um, and, and he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. In other words, perish that thought. Early on in, the, in, the, in chapter 1, I think Eric, or maybe Jim, anyway, in verse 5, early on in the letter, he said, receiving Christ, the purpose was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That's where God wants to lead us, is obedience. Um, so he's anticipating the... the um, the objection that, um, you know, we, God likes to forgive, I like to sin, what a great relationship, let's just send our daylights out because he's done it all, we can relax, we don't have to pay the law. It's a very dangerous thought, which we're going to really address in chapter 6 and 7, particularly 6. That, gets, that brings up our sanctification. So that's kind of an unpacking of these verses. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you that I think are key to understanding the gospel. I want you to go to your handout, and you'll see there, uh, I ask, what is the gospel? I think it'll, you'll find that it's very helpful if you think of it in terms of imputations. Now, here's another word that um, I put a definition in here, but it's an important concept that it's important we understand, and I think you'll under if you can it helps me remember what the gospel is. So, imputation, what does it mean? I put a definition in your handout. I said, imputation is the crediting whereby something is ascribed or attributed to another. All right, back to kids again. Let's say, suppose you have a kid in college, and they're on a school trip overseas, and you get a call and they tell you, I'm out of money, uh, and I can't get home. And after you lecture them, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to wire to your account $4,000 so you can buy the airplane ticket to get home. So in that, that's an example of where you are imputing or crediting. It's a, these are accounting terms or banking terms. Your kid did not work for that money. It's but when you transfer it into his account or her account, it's then her money, even though she didn't work for it. That's the idea of what imputation means. Um, and we see the Greek word, I forget what it is, lakizomai, right? Is that right, Bill? Lakizomai. Did I pronounce that right? All right. When God lakizomais, uh, he is imputing into your account something ascribed to or attributed to. Um, and so, once it's in the account, it's their money. This is why Luther described it as alien righteousness. It's not your own. Another Latin word that is um, key is extranos, which is Latin meaning outside yourself. Salvation is not about what inside you, transformation. All that's important, but it has nothing to do with salvation. Your salvation comes outside yourself. And he uses all these analogies, the banking analogy. The, um, we see uh, that explain the essence of the gospel. That God, everything God requires, which is total perfection, he freely gives to you in Christ. It's not just an uh, imputation is not just a New Testament thing. In Psalm 32, 2, David said, Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not impute, or the Lord counts, no iniquity. So the three, here are the three imputations. Now that we've kind of gone over ad nauseum maybe, the three imputations of the gospel, here they are that I think 
I find helpful. I hope they do for you. First imputation is God imputes Adam's sin to the whole human race. In Adam's fall, sin we all. The idea here is Adam was our federal representative. We Americans get federalism where we are, as it were, in his loins. When he sinned, we did. It's, it's much like if President Biden declared war on Ukraine, we're all at war because he's our federal representative. And we'll talk more about that in Romans 5, uh, we're in, in the second part of Romans 5, which I think I'm going to be teaching. The second imputation, God imputes the sin of believers to Christ. Now, We've all heard, what's the go- if, some, if you're asked what's the gospel, many would say, Jesus died for my sin, our sin. And that's true, but that's only half the gospel. The other half is the third imputation. God also imputes or credits the righteousness of Christ to believers. This is the other half. And these two things, number two and three, the imputation of our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, are the so-called, or commonly referred to as the great exchange. It's not only, you know, the, the hokey but accurate uh, or helpful way of saying justification is just as if I never sinned. That's imputation too. But it's also just as if I had the perfect record of Christ. That's the other part of the gospel. And it's very important, and it's the essence of what Paul is getting to, unless we're in Christ, we don't have it. We don't have righteousness. It's as though all my life I had lived, I loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and loved my neighbor as myself. That's what, when God imputes, he imputes his own righteousness. It's the righteousness from God. It's God's righteousness, not ours. This is absolutely amazing to think about. If you are in Christ by faith, positionally, you are in possession of that righteousness. You have the very record of the Son of God. Your record is the record of Christ. And this is true even though you know in your heart that you are still desperately wicked and deceit, and your heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 9.11 Which brings us to one of the great uh, slogans of the Reformation. If you'll fast forward to the symbol, there you go. Now this, um, again, I took a picture of my t-shirt, and y'all notice I I didn't realize this until afterwards, but if you look at the top, I share the paws of my cat (laughs) who is there. You get a picture of Zuzu. She's pointing to the the slogan. Now, I I listened to the... um, the tape where y'all, y'all brought this up last week, but I didn't hear where you actually took the words and explained what it means, so I'm going to do that. And you can guess, or if you don't, I'm sure most of you know it, or a lot of you do. Simul, simul, simultaneous, ustus, the J silent in Latin, ustus means just. You're at the same time just at, pe- and at peccador. Uh, and sinful. Peccador is the, the root word, peck, uh, peccador, piccadillo, sin, or he has impeccable credentials. So that's the word. It means sinner. Impeccable means not, not, no, no sin. But you are at the same time just and sinner. Now, Rome took issue with this. Uh, they took issue a lot in this chapter. The, um, as a believer, you are still, and you will be until you die, radically corrupted. That's what depravity means. It's affected our whole being. We're in Adam. We're depraved. And at the very same time, have the righteous record of Christ. What is astonishing is God pronounces people just while they are still sinners. This truth should be very liberating to us. I had a pastor once, Clyde Godwin, um, another great, I'll just share a real quick, quick story of childhood memories with my kids. We were, we were tubing in upstate New York down the river, you'll remember this story, um, and uh, 
When my girl said, Daddy, I got to go. And I said, honey, just do it in the water. We're in tubes flowing down the river. And for the next two hours, she and her cousins came up with this little ditty. You got to do what you got to do in the water. And they'd sing, they'd sing that over and over and over. Um, and now you're wondering where I'm going with this, I'm sure. So, so the next Sunday that we went to church, when we got home from our trip, Clyde was preaching, and he, I remember he said, the Christian life is much more like tubing down the river than it is <laughs> taking buckets of water to the river. And I thought, yes, that's the gospel. There's a hymn that has a line I love. I, I don't even know what the title of the hymn is, but it, there's a line that says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, wondrously complete. We have a great difference with Rome and um, the medieval interpretation of dikasune, justification. It's it's D-I-K and it has all kinds of variations, but they, um, it's found in Romans 3.24. We read it. It, That that word justification is a result. Um, the reason we have that strife with Rome is in Jerome in the 5th century, interpreted, the Vulgate interpreted that make to make righteous. And if your Bible for centuries is saying justification means to make righteous, that's how the magistrate got it wrong for so many centuries. Uh, Rome believes, and by Rome I mean Roman Catholics and Eastern, my Eastern friends, believe that you must actually become righteous, becomes a key word there, um, before you can be just before God. They believe that you must cooperate with grace. They believe in grace, but they believe it's a cooperation, uh, a dual thing here, where they basically define justification as sanctification. We believe in sanctification, but it's different from justification. Sanctification is not an answer to um, condemnation. And remember, Paul has made this long argument in the preceding chapters that we're condemned. We're guilty. The verdict is going to be not good unless we can be acquitted. And that takes justification. It's not a process. And Uh, you and I will never arrive in this life. No amount of piety, no amount of surrendering all will take you to a fully sanctified state. Our Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends essentially admit this by their whole notion of purgatory. You know, which if you don't know, purgatory is, the root word is purge. And after death, all that dross we have has got to be burned off it's a dreadful thought. And for you know, hundreds of years, you've got to suffer to be made righteous through purgatory. Um, it doesn't, doesn't that sound dreadful? They would agree with us, though, that God's standard is perfection. You've, you can't get into heaven until you are perfect or, or you, you have um, no sin. Uh, do I have time to read a great R.C.? Sproul quote on this. Let's see. I want to, there's some things I want to get to. Uh, I may come back to that. So, sum up. You've been given a gift, and it's somebody else's, namely Christ's righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's not your own. It's outside yourself. This is called the great exchange, and it never gets old. It should never get old to us. So, It asks, what's the application or what's the implication? If we truly get this, not just here but in here, what impact would it have on our daily life? It could change, it can change everything, specifically and importantly, how we deal, how I deal, how you can deal with your sin and temptation. Think about this with me. If I, if I know that I've been given, if you know that you've been given this free gift and that it will never be taken away from you, and right now and forever I can stand 
before God, not guilty. So on the judgment day, those who trust in Christ will stand before God, and instead of hearing the verdict that their sins, of their sins being pronounced upon their own heads, and the curse, all the covenant curses, the verdict will be, you're perfectly righteous. You are absolutely sinless in the eyes of God. You are declared and always will be declared to be holy and righteous and just by God because of the Lord Jesus as you have trusted in him. Now, there are two possible approaches we can have to this. Well, I'm saved. I have Christ's daily righteousness there. I can just go sin. And as I said before, that's a dangerous way to think. Or, and we're going to address that in chapter 6, or you can say that this is so liberating, so gloriously too good to be true, but it is true. And I am so enthralled by it that my heart is so filled with gratitude that I now, like never before, desire to please my Lord who gave me this indescribable gift at the cost of his own life. I want to obey. I have desire now. It's not burdensome to me. His yoke is easy. His burden is light now. Um, let me share a quick story. Suppose, suppose you have a rich uncle. Let's say Bill Gates, your uncle, maybe. And he's over spending a week with you. And he's just hanging out at home while you go to work. One day you come home. And your rich uncle says, um, you know, um, you know, I, I saw, Stephen, I saw that um, the postman came up and said you owed 42 cents. I took care of that for you. Oh, oh thanks. Appreciate that. And, and I, you got the letter. It was due. Suppose, on the other hand, the next day, you come home and he said, um, Stephen, I happened to notice on your, forgive me for eavesdropping. Um, and for, uh, I shouldn't have been so nosy, but I noticed you had this mortgage and your balance was $450,000. And I just wanted to let you know I took care of that for you. Now, what would be your response to that one? Would you go out that night and slit his tires? <laughs> well, isn't that what we do when we sin? We have been given this indescribable gift, and yet that's kind of the way we respond sometimes. But if we truly get it in here, I think it would transform the way we deal with temptation. Um, Jesus once told his disciples, one of his disciples, that he was who was forgiving much, loved much. The magnitude of this great exchange, we would not be as prone to uh, sin. And that's why the Heidelberg was organized with the guilt, grace, and gratitude format. If we really understand the depth of our guilt, we'll see the magnitude of his grace, and from there we'll, we'll obey, not because we have to, but we, because we want to. We'll tell you another story, and you've probably heard this before. I know you have the suffer through it again. All right, so there's a guy who, for 30 years, 35 years, let's say, he comes home after work, and every day in the foyer, he greets his wife, and he gives her a big old fat sloppy kiss, all right? And he does that for 35 years, every day when he comes home. One day, he comes home, and after the kiss, he says, honey, by the way, do you know why I kiss you every day? Uh, I assume you love me, that's why. No, the reason I kiss you every day is I think, I just feel like it's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> how, how would that go over with, with you guys, ladies? <laughs> Well, if that's the way you feel, don't even bother, you know. We, once we see the grace of God, that's why it should move us to obey because we want to, not because we have to. So I, I, I was going to pull from the... Um, actually, this is... I think I did... Uh, if you go to the... These are questions from the Heidelberg I think are so... So uh, spot on here, and let me just read them real quick, and I do want to make some time for some questions. I think I have a little time here. All right. Yeah. 
Heidelberg, I think, addresses it even better than Westminster in this case. The question, and we just did this in church. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of having never kept any of them, and of being still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, sola gratia, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned or nor been a sinner, and as if I had as perfectly obedient, been as, as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. And of course, the scripture support of all that is there. 61. What do you say that through why do you say that through faith alone you're righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. For only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no way, uh, no other way than faith alone. And the next three questions are, he keeps going, it was similar, but uh, the Heidelberg is spot on with this passage, I think. All right, I'm going to share one more little story, and then I'm going to open it up for some discussion questions. And if you don't have any this time, we're not going to quit. I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I'm going to feed the, I have a question for you if you don't have any comments or questions. But anyway, I'm a weather buff. I love the weather. I, uh, it's, it's a passion of mine. And I want to tell you a little, give you a little meteorological trivia this morning. Did you know? that every single snowflake, every solitary one of them, cannot form unless it has a very microscopic, uh, teeny-weeny speck of dust or, or some sort of particle like ash. I think most of the, you know, when volcanoes happen, tons of little bitty ashes in the atmosphere. It won't form. It can't. It has nothing to coalesce on unless there's that speck. You, Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, David says that he will make you as not like the snowflake. When you go out on a winter day and you, it's sunny after a fresh snow, it's blindingly white. That's the one time I wish I had sun, kept sunglasses in my car. But you, Christian, are whiter than that. You don't have that speck. That's why David, in Psalm 51, he says, Wash me, and I will be as white as snow. No, not as white. I, I will make you whiter. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You, Christian, are cleaner than that snowflake that falls from the sky because of what Christ has done for you. If you're in Christ, you are spotless. And perfect as he sees Christ, he sees you. And I pray that by the grace of God, we will all put that in our pipe and smoke it and get it not from here into here and really believe it because I really do believe it has the power to change our lives. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. No wonder Paul says that this is the power of God. And I'll close with one more Luther quote, and I'll be done with Luther. I think he had it right when he said, understand these verses of Romans correctly and you'll understand the gospel. Misunderstand these verses and you'll be greatly impoverished in your understanding of the gospel. Um, before I open it for question, lest I forget, remind me to pray at the end. <laughs> and also, um, next week, I'm going to, Eric was going to be here, but he's going to be in Tennessee. He asked me to pinch it. And we're going to go into chapter four and we'll see Paul have exhibit A, Abraham, for what he's talking about here. We're going to look at uh, the first half of chapter 4, uh, which is uh, describing how now in place is the fulfillment, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So with that, all that said, it's 10.03. We've got 10 minutes or 15 minutes maybe for Q&A or any comments or questions anybody wants to throw out there. Oh, and if I can get somebody to take this to the... Um, oh, thank you. Did you have a question, Steve? I, I do. Great. Limited, 
quoted the psalm you just quoted that we're made clean, whiter than snow. On its face, but my limited thinking makes me think that on its face that doesn't quite jive with the at the same time, Jess, 